Let me go ahead and get this started. Um, I did extend the date for the homework, which was due today. If you've got it done, of course, I'll take it. If you want another a day to look at it, because I haven't quite finished the chapter yet, you're welcome to hang on to it. I won't. I'll take. I'll take that. Uh, consider that due as of Friday. Uh, that's the only change I really made. The iTunes quiz is still due today, tomorrow morning. You can still take that. And quiz four, it looks like we'll still be good for that on Friday. It looks like I've got I get enough material today to get through, and what I'll get through on Friday, it'll be good to do at the end of class, between class and lab on Friday. And then the second article review due next week. I did finally, for your class, the last one I got to was to submit midterm grades this morning. So those are up there on D2L. Uh, they're on D2L. They're also on uh, my hack. So you can go view where you are at this point in the course. I've also, within D2L, released your current grade. I usually don't release that at the beginning of the semester because you do a 10-point assignment and then you miss a 20-point assignment and all of a sudden your grade, go, your grade goes from an A to an F and it jumps back and forth. Now that we're halfway through, it'll actually, when you go into your grades, it should show you a total at the top, a percentage, as to what, how many points you have out of the total possible so far and what your percent is. So I have all of that uh, done so far. And the only other thing I did want to remind you of is if anyone is thinking about dropping, I hope not. I hope to have everybody here. But the drop deadline is really this week for me in terms of if you want a W. I mean, if you're, if, you're, if you're failing the class and you want to get a W grade, this is the week to get out. Because after the midpoint, which because of everything is really this week, I've pushed through the end of the week, um, I give you your grade as the current grade in the class. You don't get a W grade after the midpoint. If you're passing, you can. So if you're just getting a D and you don't want a D, you can still drop up till the last day and I'll give you a W. But if you're below 60%, then you get an F grade when you drop at this, after, after this week. So if you're thinking about that, if you feel like you're on the border when you look at those, that's just something to consider and talk to me you know, this, this week about. So I'll give you a little bit of time. We can, as long as we know by Monday, if you're still here Monday and coming, then I'm assuming you're, you're in for the duration for the, for the last, last chunk of the course. So. Otherwise, uh, overall, not, not midterm grades were not too bad. They're a little bit lower because we've had a couple lower exam grades and there's a couple extra credit things that I usually throw in towards the end that haven't come in to help you yet. So right now they're probably skewed a little bit low. I'd rather do that. I'd rather have you thinking you're not doing quite as good as you, as you might have hoped and give you an encouragement to push rather than saying, oh, everybody's fine and getting A's and B's and we don't have to worry the last half of the semester and then all of a sudden final grades, final grades will, will drop. I also didn't round anything, so if you had a 79.99, I put it in as a C, just because that's what you had. I will look at those as per the syllabus at the end of the semester. So, again, I don't want to over, oh, I got a B, but you know, it's not quite a B, so you don't want to be overconfident as to where you are. So, any questions on there? Nope, nope, nope. All right, well, picture of the day for today is a. Uh, this is part of Titan, the large moon of Saturn. That's the big moon with the thick atmosphere. Atmosphere that's actually thicker than the Earth's. And it's being studied right now. We had a lander that landed on it. That was a number of years back. Uh, this is actually taken from the orbiter that is orbiting Saturn. That's the Cassini spacecraft, which has been in orbit around Saturn for goodness, eight, eight or nine years now. And it's been exploring Saturn and it's mapping. It's, it's mapping the moon Titan as it goes around as well. And what was found here is a feature that was not present early on 
uh, back in 2007 and has since appeared last year and has still sort of there but has actually changed a little bit in the last, in the last year. Now in terms of mapping Titan, we can't see the surface. If you recall, we talked about, I think we talked about Titan a little bit. You can't see the surface. It's got thick cloud cover, haze. You can't see anything on the surface. This is all mapped by radar. So radar is real good at showing things up that are a rough surface. If it's a nice smooth surface, it looks dark. So the smooth area, the darker areas here are very, very smooth. That's actually a lake. Not a water lake as we're used to on Earth. The temperatures are way too cold for that. But a methane. Methane, ethane lake. So it's so cold on Titan, much colder than anything we come close to here on Earth, that you can actually have lakes of methane. And that's what this is. That's a smooth surface. The radar doesn't see very well. And this would be a icy, rocky surface that we see here. And this is the object that was definitely not present there, although all the other features look pretty much the same. You can pick out, you know, this little feature here. It's exactly the same as it was six years before. All the features over here, I mean, you can trace out pretty much everything you saw except for this one feature. And then a year later, again, still things still look pretty much the same. There's that feature there, there's this. Everything else looks just about the same, hasn't changed significantly, except for this one little section. So, what is it doing? I can't, I can't really tell you for sure. Yes, sir. Sorry. I was just saying, I don't know how big the lake is that we're seeing there. Okay. I was saying if it's relatively large, it could be possibly like some kind of tides, considering it's that close to Saturn. I don't know, maybe. It might be something, but then they'd see it on a more regular basis because you'd see it regularly. To give an idea of the size though, that's a good point, I was going to mention that. The little scale here, this line is about is 20 kilometers. So this object is something that's about 12 miles across. Now that's the thing, could it be tides? Could it be something, or could it just be the lake receding a little bit? Could there be some, some material under this methane lake that, you know, if the lake level goes down a little bit, it all of a sudden pops up and appears? And that might be, that could be possibly what we're seeing. They also suggested some kind of uh, foaming on the surface. Or, what else did they tell me? I was trying to remember what else they said. Or some kind of floating material. Quite an iceberg, put it that way. It would be quite an iceberg 10 miles across. But could there be some, you know, floating piece of material that's there? It didn't seem to have moved significantly. It still seems to be in the same spot right here, although not near as clear as it was. So that's why, you know, for me, just wondering, looking at it, could it be something that was surfaced through here with the level, maybe perhaps the level of the lake went down, and then here the level of the lake is rising and it's getting closer to that level and it's kind of smoothing it out and disappearing, and if we could see it again and the lake level rose more, would it disappear completely? But it's something that astronomers are still studying and trying to, trying to understand. So. It's the nice thing about this, you get, to, you get to see stuff that's still you know, currently being studied. This picture was taken, this last one was August 21st, you know, after the class, after the class actually started. So, relatively new things that we're still looking at. That's one of the reasons I like to do these, do these pictures. Regardless of the fact that they forgot to update their date today. That's why it says October 14th. That's not yesterday's picture, that is today's. So, I'm sure they'll catch that at some point and, and fix it. But, questions? Otherwise, we'll head back out to the stars. And we were on this one, and I believe I did not mark. I believe I ended up with this. Is that correct? Okay. So I believe I ended up here. So let me just put it up one more time just to review. Uh, after I get through the rest of the
chapter 10 material here. I'm going to go back and we're going to look at the HR diagram again in a little bit more detail. Mainly because you're going to see this in the next chapter. In chapter 11 you're going to see it. In chapter 12. Probably in chapter, in chapter 13. And maybe even a little bit when you get into galaxies you'll, you'll see this diagram again. So you're going to be seeing it a lot. And just to recall it was a plot since we last talked about this, what, a week ago, it was a plot of luminosity, how bright the star is. In this case, it's how bright it is compared to the sun from the brightness of the sun here. A hundred times brighter, 10,000 times brighter, or one one hundredth, one ten thousandth for the very faint stars, versus temperature. Very hot stars to the left, very cool stars off to the right. And it turns out when you plot all the stars like that, and recall, that's plotting the luminosity. That's how bright the star really is. That's not how bright it looks in the sky. Because that depends on the distance, right? It can look real bright if it's real close to us, like the sun. Or it could look real bright if it's extremely bright, even if it's far away. So this is the real luminosity. This is actually comparing all the stars to each other. You know, how bright are they relative to the sun? If you put this star here at the sun's distance, it would be 100 times brighter than the sun is. So we'd be gone. If you put this star over here at where the sun is, it would be 100 times fainter. We'd still be gone. Now it would be too, go for too hot, too cold. So they're all compared to the sun, but they're all, it's all an com intrinsic comparison, how bright those stars actually are. Uh, the other thing that this plot was showing, this is plotting about 20,000 stars. Um, and we find that there are, most of the stars seem to fall on this line that goes from the upper left down to the lower right. And that's what we call the main sequence of stars. That's where most of the stars spend their lives. That's where our sun is. And the, sun, the stars spend about 90% of their lives there. So about 90% of their life is spent there. About 9 to 10% is spent as a red giant. Uh, white dwarfs are just really hard to find. So the stars will actually spend a lot of time there once they form. Once they form a white dwarf, they're pretty much there forever but they're much harder to find. But in terms of the lifetime of a star, which we'll be talking about in the next couple chapters, the most of its life is spent on the main sequence. So most of the time it will be there and most of the time it'll stay, it'll stay in one spot. So the sun is here when it actually formed, when it actually became a star and it's going to stay there. It's not going back and it's not getting brighter and it's not getting fainter and moving up and down here. Typically the stars, once they form on the main sequence, they stay. And the sun, for a star like the sun, that can be 10 billion years. For these more massive stars, it might be 10 million years, a much shorter time. For these stars, they might last a trillion years. Right? We can't even imagine 10 billion, so a, tri a trillion many times more than that. But these stars will last even a much longer period of time on the main sequence. But they'll stay essentially in that same spot. There's slow changes and the sun will slowly change. And that's what we'll be looking at over the coming, coming chapters. Alright, so that was the HR diagram. And again, I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. There's a, two more sections I want to cover in this chapter a little bit though. Uh, the next is a measure of distance. We talked about distance way back. We talked about parallax. And when the star appeared to change its position, right, we had the sun, you had the earth on one position, the earth on another, you had a nearby star, and you had a whole bunch of distant stars. And when you look there, Looking at when it, you measure it in January and you measure it in July, here that star looks like it's in one part of the sky, here it looks like it's in another part of the sky. That was parallax. 
So it's just a shifting position depending on your location. Same thing I get here, right? I stand at the front of the classroom. Two people are right directly in front of each other, but however, if I move over here, one person is moved more. The person closer to me is going to shift more. The people in the back of the room are going to be closer to where they, where they were. So the same kind of shifting occurs, occurs there. This type of measurement is related. It's called spectroscopic parallax, but it's only called parallax because it's a way of measuring distance. It has nothing to do with this shift. So there is parallax, that is one way of measuring the distance to a star. If we can measure that angle, we know exactly how far away that star is. Spectroscopic parallax is another way to measure distance, but it uses spectroscopy to find the distance to a star. And what you do is take a couple of steps here. First step is to measure the star's apparent magnitude. It's how bright it appears to be in the sky and its spectral class. Right, that OBAFGKM, find out what classification is, essentially measuring its temperature. Once you determine the spectral class, you can then use that to estimate how bright the star is. How do we do that? Well, I'm going to go, I'll come back to this in just a second. If we, if we measure the star's spectral class, say it's a B star, well, we estimate it's up here. We can then figure out how bright it is from the HR diagram. So we figure we estimate its spectral class. Remember, these are subdivided, so we find exactly where it falls and say, okay, it must be about 100, 200 times brighter than the sun. If we do that, so we can get the luminosity, we now know two things. We know how bright the star appears to be in the sky to us, how bright it appears, we know how bright it really is, how much energy it is really putting out. We can combine those two to find the distance. It gives us a way to find the distance to the star. So we can actually calculate, there's a way to calculate the distances. Did I give you one? I don't think I did. Sometimes I give you one. I don't think I gave you one on this, did I? Yay, you don't have to calculate it, right? So I don't think I actually, I think I'm the sun and stars one I gave you, I think I must have taken that problem off. Either that or I give it to you on a future one, maybe it's on the next one. But you can actually, you can actually calculate the distance, you can actually calculate the distances. I want you to know that you can do it, I'm not good, I might ask you to do it on a homework, I'm not going to ask you to do it on an exam or anything of course as with, as with the other calculations. But you can, if you can measure those two things, you can measure the apparent magnitude, that's really easy, that's just how bright the star appears in the sky. You point a telescope at it, you put a detector on that counts how much light's coming through each second, and you can get a measure of how bright it, it appears to be, how much light is coming here at the Earth's distance. If we can get the spectral class, let's put it out into a spectrum, measure the spectral lines, determine what classification it is, we can then get its luminosity, how bright it really is, and we can combine those two as a new method to give us a distance. The nice thing about this is that it works for any star as long as that star is bright enough that you can get a spectrum for it. If it's bright enough that you can take a spectrum and spread out the light and not have it disappear, right? If you're only getting a little tiny bit of light and you try to spread it out into a spectrum, it's going to be too faint to see. If you've got enough light that you can see it and spread it out into a spectrum, you can then find the distance to the star. That works a lot better at further distances than this does. So it gives us a step on the distance scale here. And we're going to see this grow over the coming weeks. For very close objects, we can bounce a radar off them. Works for the moon, Venus, uh, maybe Mars. 
much further out than that, you're not doing too good, anything further than about an astronomical unit, it's not going to be strong enough. Parallax I mentioned, that works out to a couple hundred parsecs, about 600 light years, 6-700 light years you can get accurate measurements. Again, big distance, right? Light year is a tremendous distance and very, very far, six or 700, wow, we're really getting out there. But in terms of our galaxy, our galaxy is maybe 100,000 light years across. We're measuring 600. That's our little tiny backyard in terms of measuring things here on the, on the Earth. We're only measuring things very close to us. Now if we want to look a little bit further, spectroscopic parallax allows us to get out many times further, about 10,000 parsecs or about 30-some thousand light years, getting a big chunk of our galaxy we can actually measure now. So it actually goes from measuring you know, just our own backyard to measuring you know, a big chunk, you know, a big continental size section of the Earth, perhaps, by comparison. We're not getting the entire galaxy yet. We still can't measure some of the more distant ones, mainly because the stars are just going to be too faint. We're not going to be able to get a good spectrum of them to be able to classify them. And if your classification is uncertain, you know, well, maybe it's G, maybe it's closer to K, and you're not quite sure getting a good enough image, then you're going to have a big error in how big of a distance you're estimating for it. So you need a good, accurate measurement of that in order to be able to determine distances. There are more methods coming. There are other things that work further out because we can measure distances to other galaxies and, and the like, but not through, not through any of these, these methods. So we're going to see this again coming back over the next couple of chapters. We'll see a few more ways to measure distances. The one problem it has is that you have to make sure, you have to be able to get a careful observation to make sure that the star is on the main sequence. If the star is not on the main sequence, for example, if you classify a star in here, this is the, these are the K stars right here, little cooler stars in the sun. Well, if you determine it's a K star, that tells you the temperature. And you're going to use this to figure out its luminosity. Well, in this case, if you're on this edge, you're close to the sun, maybe a little bit fainter than the sun. If you're on this edge, eh, significantly fainter than the sun. But how do we know, how do we tell the difference as to whether we're here on the main sequence or for a giant or for a supergiant? The temperatures are the same. The spectral lines are going to be. Which lines you see are going to be exactly the same. You're either going to see the same strength of hydrogen lines regardless of what size the star is. One thing that will be different and that astronomers use to separate the classifications is the width, how wide the spectral lines are. These are examples for a supergiant star and a main sequence star. If we look at that, you note that the lines are the same. You see the same exact pattern. That's what we use for the classification. It just depends on the temperature. But the width of the lines, these lines are very, very narrow by comparison to these. The main sequence star is a much denser atmosphere. So particles are moving around a lot more. It spreads out the lines. In a supergiant star, it's gigantic, right? We looked at some of those sizes way back, back a week ago, and they were spread out, you know, tremendously. Ways they're really gigantic. They're filling par big parts of the solar system. They're very diffuse out there. The particles aren't banging into each other as much, and it doesn't affect the lines. So they come out very, very sharp. So you not only have to figure out what the temperature class is, what the sun is. The sun was a G2 star. But you also have to figure out what we call a luminosity class. 
So you also want to find out if you're using the main sequence that it's a G2, but it has to be a luminosity class 5. That's a main sequence star. So you need to be able to find that too. Otherwise, that star that you're seeing that has a temperature, you know, of what, about 5,000 degrees here? Well, is it as bright as the sun or a little bit fainter? Is it up here in a, a, a giant star a hundred times brighter than the sun? Or is it a supergiant star, maybe 20,000 times brighter than the sun or more? Makes a big difference when you're trying to calculate the distance. If you don't know how bright that star really is. So you not only have to look at the, the pattern of the lines, but you have to look at how the, how the width of the lines compare to give us a complete classification and to allow us to use it for distance. Otherwise, you're going to get big, big errors, when you're, especially when you're measuring these very cool stars. Because you can see there's a big range. When you get out here to the coolest stars, you can go from 1 10,000th the brightness of the sun to 10,000 times the brightness of the sun with the same temperature. All depending on how big that star is. Not such a big deal when you're looking at the very hot stars. They're all pretty close together. They all kind of converge together up there. Makes it a little bit easier there. But on this side especially, you really have to, have to watch out. Alright. So this is one way we can distinguish the two. And we can see that we find stars that are essentially the same temperature. Mid 4,000, 4,000 some degrees. But they're quite different in terms of their properties. The luminosities can change drastically. This first star, which is a main sequence star, one that's a little bit cooler than the sun, is going to be about a third the brightness of the sun, about 80% of its size. Whereas a same star, same temperature star, K2, exactly the same, essentially the same temperature, about 4,500 degrees, has gone from a third the temperature for luminosity of the sun to a hundred times. Again, if something is a third the brightness of the sun and you're trying to measure its distance, you get one number. If it's actually 110 times brighter, you're going to be really throwing off your distances if you don't know that. If you know it, it's fine. But if you don't know what the luminosity, what, cla what luminosity class they are, you're going to have a lot of trouble determining the distances. Again, this one is a very large, bright star. You're going to see that over a very large distance, but you have to know that it is really that bright in order to be able to determine those distances accurately. So this is one method we have to extend the distance scale, to be able to measure distances. Distances are one of the hardest things to measure in astronomy. Not the hardest, but one of the, one of the very hardest to be able to determine because there's no, this is the only direct method, this parallax that I showed you, that's the only direct way to do it. In order to use this method, this method really depends on parallax because you need to use the HR diagram. In order to get the HR diagram, you need to be able to measure some distances to be able to compare all the brightnesses of the stars. So if you don't know the parallax of some stars to calibrate the main sequence, to find out exactly where it is relative to the sun, then this method isn't useful. Any errors in parallax build into errors in spectroscopic parallax. So any errors that you make here in terms of determining distances, we use those to calibrate this one. Now we've got errors here. And guess what? You're going to use this one to help calibrate the next one and the next one. The errors start to grow drastically. So that's why you'll look and you'll see these distances. If you look up the sizes of things like the galaxy or how far away things are, you might see it's 600 to 800 light years away. You know, for a star. 
That sounds like that's, we have no clue, right? It's either 600 light years or 800 light years. A light year is a tremendous distance. It sounds like we have no clue. It's all because we don't have any good and accurate way to measure distances. The hardest, one of the really hardest things to measure is actually the mass of the objects, though. Masses are even harder to be able to measure. And that's because we can measure the distance to a star. We at least have some idea of how to do that if we can take a spectrum of it. The mass of a star requires that it be in a binary system in order to get a measurement, in, in order to measure the mass. It has to be orbiting. Some, something has to be orbiting it or it has to be orbiting something else. There has to be some orbital motion in order to be able to determine the masses. And that's going back to using Kepler's third law, which we talked about a while back. Kepler's third law said that a squared, square of the, or a cubed, the cube of the dis average distance between a star, a sun and the planet was equal to the square of the period. So that was a cubed equals p squared. There's actually a more general form that involves the masses that Newton figured out. Newton figured out that this works for the solar system for things orbiting the sun, but there's a more general form that works in order to determine distances and masses any place in the universe. And there's still a constant And there's, I'm not going to worry about what the constant is. There's some constant here that you multiply it. But in the sun, all this becomes 1. So it makes it very easy in the solar system for the sun. But this means that if we know what this constant is, it's something we can measure. It's got pi in it and a couple other constants. You can just figure we know what that is. If you can measure A and you can measure P, then you have a way to determine the mass of the stars. Because you can measure the distance, how far apart are those two stars on average? How long do they take to orbit each other? You know, how many years does it take one to orbit around the other? And if you can figure out those two, then you can find out the total mass of the system. And you can at least estimate how much mass is, uh, those stars contain. But it requires two stars. If you've got one star sitting there all by itself, and you can't measure a planet around it, and you can't detect a planet around it or something, you have no way to get the mass of that star. So if it's just sitting there all by itself, there's no way. This doesn't help you because you've got nothing orbiting it. But there are a couple different types of binaries, and that's what this slide is kind of showing. Uh, it's kind of all crushed together there, but there's three different types. There's visual binary. A visual binary means you can actually see it. So when you look at this star through a telescope, instead of seeing one star, you know, you might look at the sky and you'd see this one star there. But if you look at it through a telescope, you might see two stars. You'd actually see one star and a second star really close together. You could watch over time here in 1948. Seven years later, you can see how the star has moved a little bit. Another five years later, it's moved a little bit more. And, you know, coming up here, what? About 35 years later, you've come around almost to a complete. You've come around almost to a complete orbit. So if you watch it, you can actually watch the stars orbit each other. Makes it very easy to get a period, how long it takes them to orbit each other. You're watching them on the sky. You can get an estimate if you know things about the distance. You can then figure out how how far apart they are, and you could then use this to determine the masses. 
so you can actually determine a mass. So a visual binary gives you a very good way to determine the masses because you can actually physically see the stars. Um, this is actually uh, one of the rarest types of binaries though. You've got to have the stars far enough apart to really be able to see them. So while they're nice, you can actually see it, map out the entire orbit and get real good details on it, they're not that common. They're not that easy to see. More common is a spectroscopic binary. These are nice, these are common. These are common because all you have to do is be able to see in the spectrum that there's two stars. You won't see two stars separate, they're too close together. Your telescope just does not have the resolving power, you know, even a big telescope might not have the resolving power to detect two distant stars very, very close together. It's all going to be blurred together as one star. However, when you look at the spectrum, you might be able to detect the lines from the brighter stars and you might see them. You'll see them being shifted, red shifted at one point. A year later or months later or several years later, you'll see them shifted, blue shifted. So shifted this way, one time they're shifted this way a little bit, then they're shifted this way a little bit. What you're seeing is the light from the one brightest star and sometimes it's moving towards you in the orbit and sometimes it's moving away. You don't physically see both stars. But you can still use that. You can measure the period of those shifts to get a period. You can use that, that and the distance to try to estimate how far apart they are. So there are still some ways to get the distance. It's a little bit harder. It's much harder to get it, get it with the spectroscopic binaries, but they're much more common. The last one is what's called an eclipsing binary. An eclipsing binary is not one you see, you don't see both stars, so it's closer to a spectroscopic binary, but it's tilted so that you're looking exactly edge on on it. Meaning if you draw this orbit on a piece of paper and then look at the thin side of the paper, that's how you're looking at the orbit. So what you would see is one star, you wouldn't see any other evidence, but you'd see this one star and over time it would pass in front of the star because you're looking exactly edge on, exactly the flat edge of that piece of paper. And when it passes in front of the star, the star is going to get a little bit fainter. Right? It's blocking out some of the light from it. So this star, this star, the, the star, other star blocks out a little bit of light from the brighter star and the star gets fainter for a period of time. Comes back out, gets brighter again, disappears completely when this star is behind the other, when the fainter star is behind the bright one. You're going to get a little bit of a drop in brightness then, right? Because the total brightness is the sum of the two stars. You're seeing all both stars light there. Here you're losing some of the light of the brighter star. Here you're losing the light of a, the fainter star. But you can see this pattern and you can measure that. Again, these can be very closely orbiting. But you can use the time and figure out the period very easily by how long it takes from eclipse to eclipse. So you can actually figure out the period. Again, with other properties, they can estimate how far apart those two are. If we know something, again, we have to know something about the distance. So I said distances were hard, but you need distances to really be able to work out masses as well as other properties. And that's another way. So those we can use to get distances as well. Eclipsing binary, uh, the best known one is the star Algol. 
Algol's the demon star in the constellation of Perseus. It was the head of Medusa. So why was it the demon star? Well, it changes its brightness. It actually, you can actually, this is one you can actually go out if you know when to go look at it, and you can look up when the, when the minima is going to occur, when it's going to be in eclipse, and it gets significantly fainter. It can go from being a relatively bright star to being a really, really faint star all of a sudden. You can look up when that occurs, and that, of course, probably why it got its name as a demon star, because it was changing. It was changing its brightness, which other stars at the time didn't do. We didn't know of stars changing their brightness. This one very significantly changed its brightness from a good bright star and changing it by several magnitudes. So many times, you know, five, ten times fainter than it was when it's at maximum. When it's at eclipse, it's a much, much fainter. It doesn't disappear completely, but gets significantly fainter when a lot of its light is blocked out. So that's one example of, of those that's, that's used. But this does give us a way, any of these give us a way to measure distances. Uh, the visual binaries work really well. The eclipsing binaries actually work pretty well too. Spectroscopic binaries, are, even though they're most common, are about the hardest to use to measure accurate masses. Just because in these cases, we essentially know nothing about how the system is tilted. And that makes it, that'll make a difference in the mass determination. We don't know exactly how the system is tilted. Are we looking at it face on, like the top one, where we, see, we can actually see the two stars? Is it looking exactly edge on? If it's an eclipsing binary, we know how it's tilted. It's exactly edge on. Because if it was a little bit above or below, that star, this star, instead of passing right in front of the star, you don't need much of a tilt. Tiny fraction of a degree will put it up above each time or below each time, and you'll never see it. You'll never see an eclipse. So in order for this to be seen as an eclipsing, it has to be almost perfectly. And looking at that piece of paper, right, trying to look right down the narrow edge of it, and exactly like that. So what do we find out when we study the masses? Well. First of all, it tells us where the stars are going to come on the main sequence. So we learn when we finally begin to measure these masses that there's a pattern, that the most massive stars are in the upper left corner of the main sequence, the stars that are 10, 20, 30 times the mass of the sun. Uh, Main sequence stars towards the middle are about one solar mass, stars like the sun. Uh, And then further down, about two-tenths of a solar mass, much, much fainter. Uh, circle with a dot inside means sun. So this is masses of the sun. This is just comparing it to the sun. There would be our sun right there. This would be a star about two-tenths as massive. And going down even fainter here, you know, a tenth the mass of the sun. Going up here to 15 and 20 and 30 times the mass of the sun, very far up. But it tells us where those stars will end up on the main sequence. And we're going to look at that in the following chapter, in chapter 11, when we look at the formation of stars. How do they get to the main sequence? How do they form in the first place to actually get there? And we'll see that it really does depend on how massive they are. And when we count these masses, here's my little, little pie chart here. When we looked at sizes of stars, the sun was a tiny star, right? I showed you that video clip that how little the sun was because we started off with the planets and got to the big, big sun and then the sun kind of got dwarfed real quick when we got through, after we got through that. This is looking at masses. If we just count up how, massive, how many ma- stars there are in each mass grouping, well, sun would be right about in here, right about on this line because these are stars that are a half to the mass of the sun and these are stars that are about one to two. You've got 78% of the stars are the mass of the sun or less. So any random star that exists in the galaxy, there's about a 78% chance that it's less massive than the sun. 
about a 22% chance that it's more massive. Some of these are very, very rare. When we look at these incredibly big stars, these ones that are greater than 20 times the mass of the sun, yeah, they're out there, but there's only, you know, six one-hundredths of a percent of them, of all the stars. So, very, very tiny fraction. Now, that occurs for a couple reasons. First of all, it has to do with how the stars form. When you st- form stars in a cloud of gas, there's a distribution that will form, so you tend to form more small stars than large stars, just in general. You won't form as many large stars as you do small ones. So that skews it in one way. The other thing is, I've talked a little bit about the ages so far. Right? The sun will live 10 billion years. These massive stars only live a few million years. So the giant blue stars that formed 10 billion years ago, they're gone. The ones that formed a billion years ago, they're gone. They don't exist anymore. The ones that formed 30 million years ago, most of those are gone. The only giant blue stars that we still see existing in the galaxy are the ones that formed relatively recently. These stars might only live, these most massive ones might only live a few million years. So if they form more than a couple million years ago, they've already gone through their lives and they're gone. So if we're looking for the stars right now, we're not going to see them. Whereas these stars, these tiny little red dwarfs, well, they, li- they can live a trillion years. Universe is maybe 14 billion years old. So let's see, every single one that's formed is still around. So the ones that formed 10 billion years ago are still here. The ones that formed 5 billion years ago, they're still here. The ones that formed a billion years ago are still here. The ones that are just formed, they're still here. So we see every single one of these, essentially, that ever formed in the history of the galaxy, they're still all in, around. Whereas these ones, some of these have actually gone through their lives. So that's why we see, one of the reasons we see so very few, this little blue section, so very few there, just because they don't last very long either. You don't form necessarily a lot of them, and the ones that do form don't live a very long period of time. All right, let me finish up here then. I got a little summary for you, and we'll finish up chapter 10, then I have a little section to start on, and then I'm going to finish on Friday. Um, Distances, we talked about parallax to measure the distances to the nearest stars. We can use the spectroscopic parallax then to measure the distances to even further stars, but not getting us, getting us a good chunk of the way through our galaxy. Um, the apparent brightness is what we measure from Earth. That's how bright something appears, appears to be. That depends on the luminosity, how bright something really, really is, and its distance. Because an object can look really bright if it's right up with you, like the sun, right up with us, looks extremely bright. Or it can look bright if it just really is extremely bright, tremendously bright out in the distance. We looked at the spectral classifications, the OBAFGKM classes, and those are depend on temperature. So hot stars are O-class stars, cool stars are M-class stars. And we looked at the size depending on the luminosity and the temperature. So if you look at how luminous a star is for a given temperature, it'll give you some idea of a size. And we looked at that a little bit today when we talked about the different luminosity classes, that you could have a stars that were the same temperature, but one was much, much brighter than the other, much more luminous, meaning that its size had to be quite a bit different. Finally, HR diagram, which I'm going to come back to here in just a, just a minute, is plotting the luminosity against the temperature. And we find that most of the stars are main sequence. There's main sequence stars, there's giant stars, 
and there's a scattering of other things. But the main sequence stars are the vast majority of the stars. About 90% of the stars will land on the main sequence. We can use that HR diagram to extend the distances. So we can extend our distance ladder up another rung and find out that we can now get distances out, you know, a third of the way across the galaxy. You know, we couldn't with parallax. We could not measure their shifts if they're parallactic shifts, but we can measure their distances this way. Masses can be measured, but it's tough. It's not an easy thing to measure masses of stars or masses of other objects in the universe. We'll see that same method that we talked about here, Kepler's law that I just erased again, uh, comes back to measure masses of galaxies. We can use that to measure how massive galaxies are, the same thing. Galaxies can orbit around each other. Anytime you have things orbiting around each other, you can use that to determine masses as long as you know all of the properties. And that mass will tell us where the star ends up on the main sequence. So that finishes up chapter 10, uh, which I believe is the rest of your homework. So you, if you, it was, was due today, if you want to turn that in today, you've got it. I'll be happy to take it after class. But if not, you can also turn it in, submit it on D2L or anything else by Friday, and I'll still, I'll still take that. Questions? Otherwise, I'm just going to get the introduction on this so I make sure I get through everything on, on Friday. Whoops. Get that up there. Yeah. Yes, sir. For quiz four, yes. memorize both chapter 9 and 10? I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about quiz four. It's going to be covering what we're covering in this, in this section here. Okay. So it's, not, it's, nothing you have to, it's nothing that you have to memorize. It should, be, it should be one that's very, very easy. If you were here for the, if you're here for the lecture, it should be very, very easy. That's my goal, at least. All right, so let me put this up here. And just what I'm going to talk about here, it's a few slides. I'm going to go through the first couple today. And I'll finish up this on Friday. And what I'm going to do is going to talk a little bit about the HR diagram. And the HR diagram, we've looked at some of them. But it's a plot of two different measurements. And you're going to plot something that measures temperature down here. And you're going to do something that measures luminosity up here. That's coming, coming in a minute. Temperature is plotted backwards. That means that the hot star temperatures increase this direction backwards from what you'd normally do. If I just gave you a list of stars and, t and temperatures and told you to plot them, what you'd instinctively make your thing starting with zero and going on up, right? Temperatures in this case are done backwards. So these are the hottest stars and these are the coolest stars. But that's not the only thing that you can necessarily plot there. There are other things that measure temperature. So depending on what you're doing, what astron astronomer is doing, they might plot temperature. They might plot the spectral class. Right? O, B, A, F. G, K, M. It measures the same thing. Each spectral class has a specific temperature associated with it. If you have an astronomer who's doing calculations, doing some kind of model with stars, they might naturally get a temperature for them and they would use that. You don't normally just measure a temperature of a star. You have to do something, some work to do it. So usually that involves someone doing a calculation. Spectral class, someone classified a bunch of stars organize them, you could then you do that. That would be a direct measurement. What's most often used is actually the color index. 
which is sometimes listed as capital B minus capital V. The color index is a way to measure the temperature of the star. It's actually a way that you can make a measurement. You can look at the stars and measure it and it's related to the temperature but we don't get, a, you don't give it a direct temperature measurement, you just leave it as the color index. What it does, and we looked at this a little bit a week ago, is it looks at the temperature or the brightness of the star in two different wavelengths. It looks at it in the blue part of the spectrum, the B, and in what we call the visual or yellow part of the spectrum. So we look at how bright the star is in each of those two. And did I put that up here? Yep. So we look at the blue filter, And we measure how bright, how bright it comes up. How bright is that star appear to be? What is its magnitude through a blue filter? The V is what we call a visual. Which is really kind of a yellow. And we measure those two brightnesses. So we figure out how bright it is here, how bright it is here, and we subtract the two. So B, that brightness, minus this brightness, gives us what the color index is. So very easy measurements to make. They don't depend on distance. They only depend on how bright the star appears here on Earth. It doesn't, nothing, no distances come into it at all. So we, how bright it is through one filter, how bright it is through another filter, and then we get a color index. And you might get numbers ranging from, uh, you know, minus point two or so for a very, very hot star would actually be, neg would be negative. The V number, the V number would actually be bigger than the B. And you might get stars down here that are, well, I don't know, about two or so on the cool side. Again, we're actually going to do one of these where you get to plot some of these numbers in one of the labs coming up. So you get to see and work with some of the numbers. You don't have to do the measurements or the calculations, I just give you the numbers. But these are three different things that you can possibly plot on the x-axis of the HR diagram. So you can plot the temperature, you can plot the spectral class, which depends on the temperature, you can plot the color index, which depends on the temperature. These are just two things that you actually measure. You can measure the color index of a star. I can't measure the temperature. I can tell you whether it's hot or cool, but I can't just look at a star and say it's such and such a temperature. But these are things that we can actually measure. So if you're actually observing stars, you're much more likely to see things plotted like this. And that's what I'm going to give you is I'm going to give you a set of stars and give you their color index and have you plot them on it and make a, little, make a couple HR diagrams so you get some practice actually doing that. So on the x-axis, it's always some measure. All of those measure the temperature of the star. They all tell you a very hot star to the left, all tell you a very cool star to the right. And I'm not going to try to do the y-axis. The y-axis comes up next. I'll put that back up and continue and kind of fill it in, fill it in the next time. We'll fill in what we can actually see inside the HR diagram. But we're going to find there's also a few things you can plot on the different measurements you can plot on the right left hand side of the star. So if you have homework, a question, I'm sorry. What does the filter What is the filter? Just a colored filter. So you're only letting through the blue light. So we look at just in the blue light. We take out the of the whole spectrum. We look at just the blue light, how much brightness is coming through there. We look at just the yellow light, how much light is coming through there and compare them. If it's a very hot star, you're going to get a lot more blue light than yellow. If you get a very cool star, you're going to get more yellow than blue. So when you subtract them, then you're going to, it's going to tell you the temperatures. 
So, in, and exactly the measurements give you, and it can actually determine a temperature. You can say that, you know, a color index of this tells you it's a specific temperature. It's 30,000 degrees. So, you can actually get a temperature that way. Anything else? Otherwise, have a good day. Homework, good. If you have it, I'll take it. If you want to wait and uh, finish it up, you can turn it in anytime by Friday for me. So, I will see you Friday.